Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Jeremiah 16 tonight. Tom, in praying for us, just said, Hallowed be thy name. That concept of hallowed is separate, different than us. Look at the very last verse of Jeremiah 16. It ends with God telling us why he's doing all the things that he's doing. And ultimately, the reason that God does anything is for his own glory and for his own revelation of himself. Therefore, behold, says verse 21, I'm going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh. Unlike all the other gods, all the other fake gods, all the other gods that are not gods, he is the God that is, and his name is Yahweh, and no other God has that name. God is zealous for his own name. He's zealous for his own reputation. And he does the things he does so that people will know that he alone is God, that he alone is Yahweh. So it's very good in our prayers to admit to God the very thing he is revealing about himself, that his name is separate and lifted up and hallowed and isn't to be taken in vain because it is not ours. It is his righteous holy name. Therefore, we should not be abusing it for our own vanity. So chapter 16, starting at verse 1, yet again, God speaks to Jeremiah. This is not so much a vision as it is a prophetic revelation from God as he assigns Jeremiah what to say to the people of Israel. And as he uses Jeremiah and Jeremiah's life, as an example so that they will understand what God is doing. There are three things that God commands Jeremiah to do. Each of them come at a personal expense to Jeremiah, and each of them act as a visual aid so that the people of Israel will ask about what is happening But notice that it does come at Jeremiah's sacrifice. God does not require things of him that are easy. He asks him to deny normal human emotion and relationships and even human empathy in order to demonstrate that God is going to pour out his judgment without empathy, that he is going to punish his people. That's the first half of chapter 16. But then the second half of chapter 16 is really wonderful and amazing because we've been reading all of these early passages of Jeremiah 
where God is explaining that he is going to pour out his wrath on his chosen people, on Israel. And Israel naturally believed that they, being God's elect, chosen, beloved people, they believed that God cannot and would not punish them to this extent. And it's natural as you're reading the things that God says about them, it's natural to ask, well, then what about that covenant you made? What about the fact that you love them with an everlasting love? What about the fact that you've given them this land in perpetuity? What about the fact that you made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? What about your unconditional promises that you have made to this particular people group? So midway through this chapter, as God is explaining how he is going to punish these people, how he is going to essentially wipe out this generation of people, nevertheless, for the first time in the book of Jeremiah, he's going to really make plain that he's also going to keep covenant with them. He's going to restore them. He's going to gather them. He's going to bring them back to this land. And then God even gets eschatological beyond just the regathering of Judah back to Jerusalem for the sake of rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple. But as we look at the language, you can see that it is God's ultimate collection of Israel and how he is going to bring them back to their land forever, at which time the goyim, the nations, are all going to flow to Jerusalem to learn about their God, and God is going to reveal who he is and that his name is Yahweh. So we're talking about a covenant-keeping God. We're talking about a God who keeps his promises, which includes his promise in the law that if you don't do it, I'm going to punish you. Well, he's going to keep that. But at the same time, he is fully aware of the promises that he's made to the forefathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he fully intends to keep those too. So it's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and situation. God is going to punish Israel, but then he is going to restore Israel. And along the way of describing his restoration of Israel, he uses language that Jesus himself used when Jesus described gathering his people to himself. He said to his apostles, I will make you fishers of men. And that is taken directly from Jeremiah 16 and the promise of God to go collect his people. So all of that is packed into this chapter. Let's begin at verse 1 of the chapter and let's see these three things that God is requiring from Jeremiah at great personal sacrifice to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord also came to me saying, you shall not take a wife for yourself nor have sons or daughters in this place. Now, he is requiring of Jeremiah that while he's in Jerusalem, that he not take a wife, that he not have any children, that he not have a family, that he not do what all Israelites were doing, intermarrying and having children and raising up families. And God said to Jeremiah, you're not going to have a wife and you're not going to have children. Now, we don't know, there is no record of whether Jeremiah took a wife later on in life. But what we do know is he was a man of about 20 
when God starts speaking to him, perhaps younger, perhaps as young as 17, when God starts speaking to him and making him a prophet to Jerusalem in particular. And then it's about a 40-year span until Jerusalem actually does fall and all the things that he's predicting actually come about, actually happen. So that's like a 40-year span where this rule applies, where you're not going to take a wife and you're not going to have children. It certainly added to Jeremiah's sense of loneliness, his sense of depression. He had nobody he could trust, nobody he could be with, no personal human intimacy. But God had a reason for it. He had a purpose for it, which is what verse 3 says. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place and concerning their mothers who bear them and their fathers who beget them in this land, they will die of deadly diseases. So there's a certain grace to God in telling Jeremiah, don't take a wife and don't raise up children in this place because the wives and the children in this place are all going to die. They're all going to have terrible diseases. So it was God's way of protecting Jeremiah from having to go through watching his own wife and children suffer under the punishment of God. But it is also, like I said, a visual aid to the people of Jerusalem because God goes on and says they will die of deadly diseases and they will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and they will come to an end by sword and by famine and their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. Okay, so the reason that Jeremiah was not allowed to take a wife or her children on the surface was to protect him from the grief that would come because the wife and the children were going to die. But it was also an example to Jerusalem that you're going to be bereaved of your wives and your children. There's going to be destruction, excessive destruction. I have been reading about the fall of Babylon or the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Babylon. And the vast majority of the historical information that we get about it does come from the Bible. But it also has been verified by archaeology. In fact, I saw just a couple of years ago, it's still online, a CNN report of all places talking about the archaeology of the Middle East and that in the rubble of the fall of Jerusalem, and in the remains of Jerusalem, there's so much evidence of the fire that burned the city and burned the temple, but among all the things that they dug up, they dug up arrowheads that were clearly Babylonian. And so, historically, it's accurate that Babylon did destroy Jerusalem. There's no question about that. We know pretty much when it was destroyed, and we know that it was horrific. And we know that there was so much bloodshed. But Babylon besieged Jerusalem over the course of years and for a while isolated Jerusalem to the point where there was massive famine and as a consequence, massive disease. And so exactly like God described, that did happen that they would die of deadly diseases 
and yet there'd be nobody to lament over them or to care for them or even to bury their bodies. Instead, they would be like dung on the surface of the ground, just dead bodies everywhere. And they will come to an end either by the famine that's going to kill them or when the walls come down, they're going to die by the sword. So even if you were to survive the famine and the disease, once the Babylonian army comes in, they're going to kill whoever's left. Now, the Babylonians did take people out of Jerusalem, take them into servitude in Babylon, starting with the most educated of them and the most beautiful of them. Once they got to Babylon, though, so the story goes, the best looking of them were often destroyed by the Babylonians who were jealous of the good-looking Jews and didn't want their wives and their women to be attracted to the good-looking Jews. In fact, the Jews who were taken to Babylon were at one point chained naked and marched along the riverside while the high and mighty of Babylon sat in boats and watched them. This is the way that they shamed them and degraded them and destroyed their sense of self and well-being. So God is describing that kind of horror that is coming on them, and then their carcasses are going to be eaten by the birds of the sky. They're going to become food for the beasts of the earth. Okay, that's number one. Verse five starts number two. For thus says the Lord, do not enter a house of mourning, or go to lament or to console them, because I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord. I have withdrawn my loving kindness and my compassion. Both great men and small will die in this land, and they will not be buried, and they will not be lamented, nor will anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. Neither will men break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead, nor give them a cup of consolation to drink for anyone's father or mother. So Jeremiah is told, since there's going to be nobody to mourn them, since there's not going to be anybody to console them, since there's going to be no one to give them consolation or give them a drink if they lose their mother or father, no one's going to show them that act of human compassion. Therefore, you as my representative, Jeremiah, between now and when the Babylonians do finally enter the land, don't you go into any place of mourning. Don't you go to any funerals. Don't you go in and lament or console anybody and when the people ask you why are you doing that the answer is because you're all going to die and there's going to be nobody to console you and there's going to be nobody there to give you any kind of comfort as you lose children as you lose wives husbands as you lose mothers and fathers Nobody's going to be there to break bread in mourning for you to give you any comfort for your dead nor to give any consolation or any drink to anyone's father or mother. Moreover, says verse 8, you shall not go into a house of feasting. That's number three. So you're not going to feast and you're not going to mourn. And the reason you're not going to do any feasting and you're not going to sit with them to eat or drink is told in verse 9. 
For thus says the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, he says, behold, I am going to eliminate from this place before your eyes and in your time, which is very interesting that God would put a time stamp into this prophecy. And in fact, it did happen in Jeremiah's own lifetime. The Babylonians did crush Jerusalem during Jeremiah's lifetime. I'm going to eliminate from this place before your eyes and in your time the voice of rejoicing and the voice of gladness and the voice of the groom and the voice of the bride. So all the things that people do to be joyous, to be happy, all the parties, all the reason for celebrating, that's all going to be destroyed, God says. So you, as my example, you're not going to take a wife. You're not going to have any kids because the women and the children are going to be destroyed here in Jerusalem. And you're not going to go into any houses of mourning or any funerals. You're not going to comfort or console those who are grieving over the dead because there's going to be no grieving over the dead. And you're not going to go into any place of happiness or feasting or party because those human events are all going to be completely eliminated when Babylon conquers Jerusalem. So you're going to be my example, and you're not going to do those things. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm going to eliminate from this place before your eyes and in your time the voice of rejoicing and the voice of gladness and the voice of the groom and the voice of the bride. Okay, so then eventually people are going to say, Okay, this is consistent with your message, Jeremiah. Why? Why is God doing this to us? That's verse 10. Now it will come about when you tell this people all these words that they will say to you, for what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God. That's just plain ignorance. This shows you the depth of their depravity because God is about to tell them exactly why he's doing this and they seem to have no conscience of it. Why would God, who is in covenant with us, who is our God as opposed to the gods of any of the other people groups on the planet, why would he do this to us? We're his chosen people. We're his elect. Why would he bring this about? Verse 11, then you will say to them, it is because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares Yahweh, and they have followed other gods, and they have served them and bowed down to them. But me they have forsaken, and they have not kept my law. Okay, well then they'd be able to say, yeah, 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 but that was our forefathers. That was previous generations, and we're the ones who are suffering for what our forefathers did. So God follows up in verse 12, and you too have done evil, even more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. So why am I doing this to you? Because you are evil. 
and you have demonstrated and proved your evil by the fact that you are not following after me and my law, and I am the only God who is, which is why I keep using the name Yahweh, because that's actually the word translated here as Lord. I am your Lord, declares the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That declares Yahweh, because Yahweh is in the process of revealing himself and making sure that everybody knows that he's the God that is and that his name is Yahweh. So you too are guilty. You too have done evil more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. Could we apply that verse to the society we are living in at this very moment? I think we could that people are walking around in the stubbornness of their own hearts, in their own wicked, evil desires, doing the things they want to do, and in that process are completely ignoring the things that God himself has laid out as the fundamentals of human life and the fundamentals of proper behavior and things like proper gender and things like proper marriage and things like proper parenting and You know, just little things like, don't kill your baby. You know, just things like that. And yet people are doing it, voting on laws to supposedly legalize it. And then they walk around thinking they're okay in doing it because they have ignored what God has said about it. So if God was this angry at Jerusalem, who had all that revelation of himself and then ignored all that revelation in favor of their own stubborn, evil hearts, I can only assume that there is judgment coming for America and the Western world, and in fact the whole world, the same way that God punished Jerusalem for their stubborn, evil hearts. There, That's just a little extra commentary I thought I'd throw in there. Verse 13 describes what he's going to do now. Now they know how guilty they are. Now they know what's coming. Now they know that their wives and children are going to die from famine and disease. Now they know that there's going to be no one to mourn them when they die. When they're, if they don't die by the famine, they're going to die by the sword. Now they know there's going to be no more feasting, no more parties, no more marriage. They know that there's going to be an utter destruction of Jerusalem. They ask why. God says it's because you're just so very evil. And your forefathers have been evil. All of you in your stubbornness have denied me. Therefore, says verse 13, so I will hurl you out. The Hebrew word that's being translated hurl there means forcibly throw, reject, just eject you out of here. I'm going to hurl you out of this land into a land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers. And there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will grant you no favor. So I think it's really interesting that God, in his great sense of irony, would accuse them of chasing after other gods rather than being faithful to him. And then basically say, you want your other gods? I'll give you your other gods. But you're not going to worship those other gods here. You're not going to do it in the land that I chose, the place where I chose to place my name. I'm going to destroy my temple. I'm going to use your enemies 
to burn down your city, the very place where I place my name, where my worship happens. I'm going to utterly destroy that. And you're going to go to those other gods that you want. You're going to get exactly what you want. What's the old phrase? Be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. Well, that's what God is doing here. You want your foreign gods? I'll give them to you. But I'm not going to help you. I'm going to give you no favor. Okay, so in the midst of all that really bad news, God then turns to, starting in verse 14, his faithfulness to that very same people group. Because he has made promises, unconditional covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The law was a completely conditional covenant. God said there are conditions into the law, and you have to follow those conditions. And if you do not, I'll punish you, and I'll punish you really bad. And then they didn't keep the conditions, and therefore he faithfully is punishing them. But at the same time, he has made unconditional promises to that very same people group, including the fact that the land that he is driving them out of belongs to them in perpetuity, and that they are ultimately going to be settled there and be planted and never move again, and God is going to protect them from their enemies, and that all the nations of the Goyim are all going to flow to Jerusalem in order to learn about the God of Israel. And he knows that he's made that promise. And so in verse 14, in the midst of all this very bad news, he then says, therefore, since I am casting you out, since I am hurling you out of this land into a land that you have not known, therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. I mean, that was their history. That was definitional to who Yahweh was up until that moment. When people wanted to describe Yahweh, they would say he's the almighty. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Oh, yeah, he's the one who brought the children of Israel up out of Egypt and planted them in this land. Anybody living in the Middle East would know that, would know about the exodus from Egypt. And more than a million people transported into their own land and the establishment of the nation of Israel and the wealth of Israel during the times of their early kings, David and Solomon. People would know that. And so God defined himself as the God who brought the children of Israel up out of Egypt. Now God says, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, they're no longer going to say that. They're going to say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north. And from, this is really interesting, because it is true that he did restore them from Babylon, that during the time of Cyrus, there was a directive from the king that allowed Ezra and Nehemiah, the children of Jerusalem, everybody who was willing to come back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And he's clearly hinting at that. That's coming. We know that it's 70 years in Babylon, and then they're going to return to their land, at least most of them. Some are going to remain in Babylon because they had become wealthy there. They were good at doing trade there. They liked their lives there, so they remained there. The same way that the northern Tribes had been scattered into all the various nations surrounding Israel. And so 
They are going to say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he banished them. So now he's talking about much more than just the Babylonian captivity. Now he's talking about how those northern tribes were scattered from Assyria out into the other countries. Historically, we know that those northern tribes disappear up into the headwaters of the Black Sea, through the Caucasus. We know that they're scattered through Europe after that. And here God says, I'm going to restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Because God remembers the unconditional promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he knows he promised them this land forever. And that ultimately he was going to plant them there and they were never going to be moved again. God knows that. He remembers that. So in the midst of punishing the children in Jerusalem, he also says, and I'm going to restore you. But beyond that, I'm going to restore you in an ultimate way where all of your brethren, all the 12 tribes of Israel are going to be gathered back into the land that I gave them because that land has been yours forever and I am a covenant-keeping God. As the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he has banished them, for I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. And then this very interesting language of verse 16, Behold, I'm going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. Then Jesus comes to the planet and says, I'm going to make you the fishers of men. In keeping with what Jeremiah has already predicted. By the way, during Jesus' ministry, before he went to the cross, when he sent out his apostles to preach the gospel of the kingdom, he said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Don't go into the way of the Samaritans. Go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel just like Jeremiah said. So that is the beginning of God's restoration. Remember that Isaiah says that when Jesus died, our sins, the sins of Israel, were put on him. Jesus, even though he is establishing his church, even though he is paying for our sins, even though he has redeemed us and is guaranteeing our eternity in heaven with the Father, one of the very important things that was predicted of him when he was a baby in the temple was that he was going to be the redeemer of Israel. And as his ministry begins and during the three and a half years of its existence, his primary target was the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he said to his apostles who were going to the lost sheep of Israel, you're the fishermen. And I'm sending you now to start this restoration process for Israel. Fascinating. Just like Jesus actually knew his scripture. Who would have guessed? There's a plan. There's a plan. Yeah. Behold, I'm going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rock. There's no place that Israel can possibly be lost God knows where they are, and he's going to find them, and he's going to restore them, and he's going to bring them back to their land. Verse 17, for my eyes are on all their ways, 
They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. God knows who they are. He knows where they are. He knows their iniquity. And that's why he sent the Savior of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel. And then he's going to gather Israel, plant them in their own land, the same way that all the prophets talk about, the same way that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is indeed a covenant-keeping God. But in a moment, he's going to say, look at verse 18, but first, before I do all that, before I do the ingathering, before I find every single one of them, before I send fishermen and hunters to go and get them, bring them back to their land, which I gave to their forefathers, before that, I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land. And they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. So they have sinned against me. They have rebelled against me. And I'm going to pay them back doubly for their iniquity and their sin. But don't for a moment think that God pouring out his judgment on Israel or on Judah is an indication that he has given up on them. Which, by the way, is a very common theology these days where people think that God was done with Israel once and for all and that all references in the Bible to Israel are a reference then to the church. Uh, that's not at all what the Bible says. What God says is, I'm punishing Israel. I'm scattering Israel. And then as Paul says, he's going to save the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And then he's going to restore Israel, exactly like all the prophets have promised over and over again. So God is going to restore them, gather them, find them, every single one of them, bring them back to their land. My eyes are on all of their ways, says verse 17. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. And I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land and they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. Then starting in verse 19, this seems to be Jeremiah speaking, apparently speaking on behalf of Israel. And listen to this conversation, because in it, God is going to separate himself from all of the idols, all of the detestable abominations of Israel. And he's going to say, I'm the only God who is unlike those gods that are not. And I'm going to make sure that they all know me and they're going to know my name. They're not going to know the names of all those idols. They're not going to know the name of all their foreign deities. They're going to know me. I'm Yahweh. And I'm tempted to say, say my name. <laughs> o Lord, says verse 19, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in the day of distress. You know, I, I hear preachers read that sometimes, that God is our very present help in the time of distress. Boy, the, the people of Jerusalem were about to undergo some real distress. Yep. Real bad, much worse than anything most of us have ever endured. I, I have yet to see wives and children dying of famine just before I was run through by a sword. 
We're talking about real distress. And yet in the midst of that, the covenant-keeping God is declared to be the stronghold. Oh, Yahweh, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in this day of distress. To you, the goyim will come. Isn't that interesting? That is that ultimate prophetic promise that the nations of the earth are all going to flow to Jerusalem and they are all going to learn about Yahweh. They're going to learn the ways of the God of Israel. Ultimately to you, all the nations, all the Gentiles will come from the very ends of the earth and they will say, our fathers have inherited nothing but falsehood. They're going to come to him and they're going to repent of their idols and they're going to declare that their own history and their own forefathers know nothing and have inherited nothing but sin and falsehood and futility and things of no profit. So they're going to admit, you're the only God, you're Yahweh, you're the only Savior, you're the only Redeemer, you're the refuge, you're the strength. You are the only God who exists. Everything we know, everything we believe, everything we've been worshiping is wrong, and we admit it. Okay, well, that hasn't happened yet, and that didn't happen when Jerusalem was returned to Babylon. The foreign nations, the Gentiles, continued in their wayward ways, in following after their idols, and they do it to this very day. So that prediction hasn't happened yet. But as I stressed earlier, the fall of Babylon did happen, historically provably happened, and it's all part of the same promise. So if the first part of the promise has already taken place in time, in reality, here on planet Earth, then the rest of the promise has to take place here in time, in reality, on planet Earth. And so the day is coming when all the Gentiles, when all the nations are going to come to Yahweh Admit their guilt, admit that their gods and their forefathers and their traditions and their religions are empty and futile and vain and of no profit whatsoever. And then God responds in verse 20. Can a man make gods for himself? I think God is asking that question from the perspective of being the only actual God. And people exist because God exists. They are his creation. So then he's saying, I can create you, but can you create gods? You're just sinful creatures. Can man make gods for himself? And yet, they're not gods. They might be wood, they might be stone, they might be something of your own hands in creation, but they're not gods because they can't talk and they can't move and they can't think and they can't save you and they can't help you and they can't protect you from the wrath of the only God who is. They're not gods. Okay, so knowing that contrast, that God is contrasting himself with all fake and foreign gods, and knowing that the time is coming that the Gentile nations are going to admit to their own failures and the failures of their gods, and that their gods and the things they believed are all falsehood and futility and things of no profit, God then confirms that and says, can you make a god? No, of course you can't. 
because those are not gods. I'm the only God. That's the context for verse 21, which is where we started and where we will close. Therefore, behold, I'm going to make them know. He's talking about the nations. He's talking about the Gentiles, the ones who are going to come repenting to him to learn about the God of Israel. Therefore, behold, I'm going to make them know. This time, that ultimate time, when the Gentiles all gather to Jerusalem to learn about the God of Israel, the only God who is, this time I will make them know my power, and I will make them know my might, my strength, and they shall all know that my name is Yahweh. What a great context for that statement. Ultimately, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Ultimately, everybody is going to get down in front of God and in front of Jesus Christ, and they're going to have to admit that he is the only God who exists, and he's the only God who is known by the name Yahweh. And he says, I'm going to make them know it. They can't make gods but I can make them know who I am. So that's Jeremiah 16, which I find just a fascinating chapter. God being faithful, both in judgment and in restoration. And that's the God we serve. And you in your lifetime will go through periods of rebellion against God, and he will correct you, but he won't lose you. The same way that he will correct Israel, but he won't lose them. That is the God who once he says that he chooses you, he elects you, he loves you. That doesn't change. Once he puts you in the unconditional covenant of salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus, he might correct you, just like the writer of Hebrews says. He may chasten you, and the chastening of God is no fun. The writer of Hebrews even admits that, but he says the end result of it is that peaceable fruit of righteousness. So the personality profile of God throughout the Bible, Old Testament or New, is very consistent. He is faithful to his own word. He is faithful to his own people. And part of that faithfulness includes correcting them and punishing them when they need it. But he never loses them. And that's good news. I can trust that God. Amen. Questions? The restoration of Israel and God's mercy and forgiveness is from an unconditional covenant, which means it can't be screwed up by us. Isn't that good news? Yeah, and God doesn't change his mind. So. Yeah, and you can't mess it up. <clears throat> he can mess you up, <laughs> but you can't mess it up. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.